Hi, and thanks for listening to another audio podcast from Creekside Community Church, Narangba, Queensland. For more information and resources, please visit our website at www.creekside.org.au. Thank you, Rhonda, and thanks for the opportunity to be here again. Really appreciate that, and uh, it's good to uh, be here in Creekside. I, I live on the what you might call the south side or the dark side, so it's good to come over from the dark side to the north side uh, today and share with you. I really appreciate that. And I want to talk about this um, topic of the courage of Jesus, but I want to ask you a question. How many people here love wrestling? Yeah. I do too. And I, I'm not talking about Greco-Roman wrestling. I'm not talking about Olympic wrestling. I'm talking about WWE wrestling, real wrestling, real wrestling. No? Yeah, good. Thank you. That's good. You're allowed to say it in church if you are. And I, you know, I, I love that because, you know, you see the current iteration of that. I don't watch it a lot. There's a five-minute highlights packet every week, which I try to get to. But uh, I, I just kind of like the characters. I don't watch it for the sport. It's not a sport. It's theatre. It's theatre, right? And, you know, there's characters. If you look at now, it's your characters like your Roman Reigns and your Randy Ortons and people like that. If you go back 20 years, some of you might be able to go back. There were characters like um, Hulk Hogan, Andre the Giant, um, the Ultimate Warrior, I could go on, Jake the Snake Roberts, Randy Macho Man Savage. I'll stop there. But when you're my age, you can actually go back to a previous iteration. Way back in the 60s in Australia, there was a thing called World Championship Wrestling. One o'clock every Sunday afternoon on Channel 9, you'd race to it. it was, and they had the characters then too. Characters in those days were people like uh, um, Spiros Arion, the Golden Greek. Who remembers back to World Championship Wrestling? I'm the oldest here, I can just tell. They had uh, Mario Milano, the Italian stallion, and Mark Lewin from New York. And they had all these... Uh, that was, it was... Um, commentated on by a guy called Jack Little who sounded like he'd eaten broken glass. He had a real gravelly sort of voice and the referee was a guy called Wallaby Bob McMasters. He was called Wallaby Bob because he played for the Wallabies. In fact, he, he bought and owned for a long while the Wallaby Hotel. You'll see it down on the Gold Coast at Mudgery Bar. He was the referee. And uh, the thing about all these wrestlers throughout the ages, they all have a signature move. Like they all have a move and they have a, a move, you know, you, you see back to uh, um, the real early days where a guy like Keller Kowalski had a thing called the claw hole where he would dig his nails into the, his opponent's stomach. And every time they were about to put on the signature move, the, the commentator's voice would raise about three octaves and here it comes, the signature move. And it would be like that. And Mark Lewin from New York had this thing called the sleeper hold where he would put his arms around someone's neck and eventually they'd lose consciousness and Wallaby Bob would go up and pick their arms up and once the arms just flopped down, that was it, the game was over. They all had a signature move and, and that's the way it was. There was a, um, a tag team couple called Skull Murphy and Brute Bernard. If you ever remember that, you've got to go back and Google this. You will now, it's, you're fascinated, I can tell. But, um, and they would, uh, Skull Murphy's claim to fame was his hits. <laughs> his skull was two to three times thicker than any other human being on the planet. And his signature move was obviously the headbutt. He would just do that. And there it goes again. Signature move. 
I want to ask this morning, what's Jesus' signature move? What signature move would Jesus have? I mean, he, he came with grace and truth and that wonderful combination, but when you think about it, to put those two things together takes courage. And this morning I want to talk about the courage of Jesus. Maybe we throw the first one up, Dave, and that'll we'll go from there. Eh? The courage of Jesus. That's his signature move. Grace takes courage, truth takes courage, and that's what Jesus showed. And I want, to, want us to look at that this morning in a, in a real way. And it was, it was courage for his kingdom. It wasn't just courage for the sake of being silly or foolish, but it was for his kingdom. And when Jesus was called to bring the kingdom of heaven to earth, that's our calling as well, that your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Our Christian faith is not just something that we just stay here as passive individuals and eventually get to heaven as an insurance um, deal when we die. No, we're called to bring the truth of heaven to earth as we live. And Jesus brought this kingdom to us and his courage was for his kingdom. When his kingdom clashed with other kingdoms, that's when you saw his courage emerge. He, he wasn't too concerned about things that weren't non-kingdom issues. I don't think Jesus was all that concerned about what colour the paint was on the synagogue walls. I don't think he worried about that. I don't think he was too hassled about whether in, when they met together they sang from Sankey's or Alexander's or Hillsong. I don't think that was a, a, a bother to him. It's not a, not a big kingdom issue. I'm not sure that he was worried about too much whether they read from the King James or the NIV or any other authorised version of the Bible. That wasn't too much a hassle to Jesus. But let me tell you, when the, when the lost were lost, when the poor weren't getting fed, when good news was not being preached to the poor, when, when the people were put in bondage and slavery and, and when the kingdom was in challenge, that's when you saw Jesus. Courage. That's when you really saw the courage of Jesus. When, when his kingdom broke into other kingdoms, that's when the courage was shown because that's when the temptation was to shrink back. It's always that kingdom or the temptation to shrink back. And I'm not sure exactly what words to put there, but Jesus had this um, spirit of healthy rebellion. I'm cautious with those words because rebellion can sound like a negative thing. I nearly put healthy defiance, but that can sound like a negative thing too. But you've got to understand that Jesus spoke up for his kingdom and he had this spirit of healthy, I'm talking healthy, um, rebellion, healthy defiance when it came to his kingdom clashing with the other kingdoms of the day. And that's what I want to reflect on this morning. We see this spirit of healthy rebellion in Jesus. And you see something of the radicalness of his message, what he said. The, the courage was certainly on the cross, but even as he lived, and you saw him live out those days before that, incredible courage. And you need to know something of the history of the time to, to grasp that. So I want to share with you a little bit about his courage and the history of the time. And we need to go back to about 40 years before Jesus was born when a guy called Herod, Herod the Great, who wasn't great, by the way, you look at the things that he did, it wasn't great. Um, but he was the, 
the anointed, if you like, leader of the Jews by Rome to be king of the Jews. And he was a bad dude. He had 10 wives, 43 kids. Um, one of those wives was a young girl called Marion. He was, she was his favourite for a while. She was, he married her at 17. She had five children with him. But there was a time later on when it seemed to him like she was getting a little bit adventurous and grooming her kids to take over from him. And he was so threatened by that, he had her executed. And her mother. You're going to take out that, you may as well take out your mother-in-law at the same time. A little later on, he saw two other sons who were a little bit ambitious and he had them executed. Five days before he died... He had his eldest son executed. So much so that Caesar in Rome said this, it's better to be Herod's pig than his son. When he was ill and dying, he had some citizens of Jerusalem put in captivity with orders to execute them the day he died so there would be mourning in Jerusalem on the day he died because he knew people would not mourn for him. That's who this guy was. He's not Herod the Great, let me tell you. And you know the story of what happened, you know, with children. But after he died, three of his kids, three of his other children, went to Rome to... I guess plead to the Roman authorities and to Caesar for that they could take over from him. And so instead of one of them getting the lot, three of them got about a third each. And one of the sons, one called Archelaus, they're the three sons, Archelaus got the southern part of the kingdom, which is around Jerusalem. And then the other, another son called Herod Antipas got the, the middle part around Galilee and Capernaum. And then the third son called Philip the Tetrarch got up to the northwest. If you looked at a, at a map, you'll see that. But three of them got the property. Three of them got leadership. And they all wanted much of their father's kingdom, and they weren't much better than him, to be very honest with you. Now, that's some of the history you just need to know, because Jesus, in that environment, all over the land, shows incredible guts, incredible courage. Incredible bravery. Let me look at, uh, we're going to look at the first couple of those particularly. Archelaus was one of the sons who went to Rome. He had already sort of assumed some sort of leadership in Jerusalem. In a bad way, he had actually, on one day, on one day in the Passover, he had 3,000 people put to death at the Passover. In one day. Just for, just, he, he didn't like people. And he went to, Rome to, with his two brothers to ask for support and ask for, um, to get some of the kingdom. And the people of that area were so disturbed that they sent 50 of their key leaders to go as well and to plead with Caesar not to give him any authority or any power. They went at the same time. Delegation of 50 leading citizens. Caesar disregarded them. Um, made him the leader of that area. And when Archelaus got back, he had all 50 executed. Let me read to you from Luke chapter 19. While they were listening to this, he went on to tell them a parable because he was near Jerusalem and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. 
He said a man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then to return. So he called ten of his servants and gave them ten miners. Put this money to work, he said, until I come back. But his subject hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, we don't want this man to be our king. He was made king, however, and returned home. Then he went for the servants to whom he'd given the money in order to find out what they'd gained with it. So here's an illustration of Jesus telling a parable, but it's not a parable plucked out of the air. It's not a parable in a vacuum. It's the story of the time. It's of this man going up to be anointed king and others going up to say, please don't do it. Then he tells another parable in the middle of that, the parable of the ten miners. You know, he, he left the king left and he left people in charge and gave them some money and when he came back he saw how they, um, how they used it and depending on how they used it was how many cities they were given leadership over, how many cities they were mayor of, if you like. So he came back and told that. And then we read this later on. He replied, I tell you, to everyone who has, more will be given. But as for the one who's nothing, even what he has will be taken away. But those enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. And after this, Jesus had said, he went on, after this, Jesus had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. You see, nobody who listened to that parable had any doubt what that story was about. As I said, it wasn't just a story plucked out of the air. This was front page of the newspaper. This is what happened there. And Jesus is standing strong and tough and courageous in the face of a huge enemy. And then it says at the end, he, went, he kept going up to Jerusalem. If you were Jesus and you'd said that about the king, you'd go the other way, wouldn't you? Now he goes right to the forefront of where the person he's talking about is living and ruling. He's, he, he, courage, guts, bravery, right at the beginning. And then we see the other son, the next son down is Herod Antipas, who's in that middle bit around the Sea of Galilee, where you see another clash of cultures, another clash of kingdoms. We see it very clearly in Luke, who's quite forensic in the way he writes, quite detailed as a medical person, quite detailed in the way he writes, and quite forensic. He writes this at the beginning of Luke chapter 3. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod Tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip Tetrarch of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias Tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the desert. He went into the country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Just by way of introduction, you have to ask yourself, why does, why does Luke tell us all those, put all those names together before he says, and the kingdom of God, the message came to John? And here's why it's a, it's a real challenge to the kingdom, because up until that point of time, it was generally thought that God, or if you're outside of Israel, the gods, spoke through the, the big dogs of the community. God spoke through the generals and the kings and the military people, and he spoke through the, the priests. And here is Luke saying, the kingdom gets all turned about here. Who's important in the kingdom is not what's necessarily who's important in the culture. Because you have all these people, but God chose a prophet who was wandering in the wilderness, eating locusts and wild honey, dressed in weird clothes, 
and God chose him to bring the message of the kingdom. And from that point of time, you know, the kingdom values were turned upside down. It's not about whether you're a big dog in the world. It's about whether God can use you in his kingdom. That's what this is about. And Luke's telling that story. That's why there's so many details. Now, who counts and who doesn't count in the kingdom gets all messed up for people. And it, it's, it's kind of a, you can be a kingdom bringer, no matter who you are. No matter who you are, you can be a bringer of the kingdom. So we read this in Luke, further on in Luke chapter 3. And with many other words, John exhorted the people and preached the good news to them. But when John rebuked Herod the Tetrarch because of Herodias, his brother's wife, and all the other evil things he'd done, Herod added this to them. He locked John up in prison. See, that's what happens when kingdoms clash. Here is, here is John the Baptist speaking out truth to the, to the leader, Herod the Tetrarch. Herod Antipas, the middle there. Here is John speaking out because... Herod broke moral codes and moral life of the day. Um, that's what had happened. It's what happens when kingdoms clash. That's what happens. And John's in prison now. And when you're in prison, um, it, I would imagine, I've been in prison, I've visited prison and not been in prison. It's a pretty awful place to be, particularly when you're telling the truth. And even though John was the cousin of Jesus and knew who he was, I guess he, he became a little uncertain in prison. He became a little unsure of, is he really the Messiah? So he's down in the dumps and he's out and about here in this prison cell and he wants to know if Jesus is really who he says he is. So he sends some friends along to ask who Jesus is. And this is what he says. After Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to preach and teach in the towns of Galilee. When John heard in prison what Christ was doing, he sent his disciples to ask him, are you the one who was to come or should we expect someone else? And Jesus replied, go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and good news is preached to the poor. Blessed is a man who does not fall away on account of me. I don't want John to fall away, languishing in a prison cell. He wants to know if I'm the, re I'm the real deal. Would you go back and tell him it's the real deal? And by the way, he doesn't go, he doesn't say to these people, go back and explain me to John through all the cerebral academic things you might have. He doesn't go back and say, well, didn't Isaiah say and didn't Zechariah say? He says, go back and tell him what you see. That the deaf hear and the lame walk and the dead are raised. And people with leprosy get healed. He says, go back and tell them what you see me doing. Go back and tell John and he won't fall away. That's what Jesus is saying now to, to explain who he is. And he's really saying, you think you can shut down the kingdom? You cannot shut down the kingdom. It's an eternal kingdom. You cannot do that. And where those circumstances are hardest to when it, when it seems like it's all lost, when, when John's in prison and he, 
he challenges the culture of his day and gets thrown in jail. That would seem like it's all lost. But Jesus comes with courage. See, here's the history of the deal. Um, Herod the Tetrarch in this, in this place, Herod Antipas here in this place, was married to a woman who was the daughter of a king across the Jordan River of, a, of an area called Nabatea. And the king of Nabatea was a very strong, strong-armied um, place across the Jordan River. So if you, it's really a political marriage. It's like I'm going to marry into the family of where my greatest threat is coming from because that'll give me a sense of peace. So he, he married the daughter of the king of Nabatea, this strong kingdom over there. All going well except he falls for his brother's wife. And his brother's wife Herodias is actually, it's a weird setup, was actually the daughter of an older brother so it's actually his niece and his brother and his and his sister-in-law at the same time. And he takes her to be his wife. So work that out for family arrangements. That's a strange setup. But here's the problem. The problem is if you want to now marry Herodias, you have to divorce your previous wife. And remember, your previous wife is the daughter of a neighbouring king who's very strong with a powerful army and a powerful and powerful people. And so the father who was kind of in a healthy peace relationship is now upset. And a war happens, a battle happens between the army of Nabatea and the army of Israel that Herod is in charge of, and historians like Josephus, who's not a believer, will tell us that the, the war was 20,000 troops from the king of Nabatea fighting 10,000 troops from Israel. That's what happened. And then Jesus tells a story. What happens is that the 20,000 thrash the 10,000. They absolutely cream them. And what happens if you're a king and you get thumped like that your profile goes down, your reputation goes down, and you're humiliated, and that's what happened to Herod. Then Jesus tells a story. In fact, he tells two stories, just the first one to kind of lead them in, in a way. He says, suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Will he not first sit down and estimate the cost to see if he's enough money to complete it? For if he lays the foundation and is not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule him, saying, this fellow began to build and was not able to finish. It's kind of a, almost a humorous story. Who would, be, who would want to build a house but not think first what it's going to cost you so it gets half finished and it never gets finished? Maybe we've got houses like that. I don't know. So he gets the crowd in, then he tells another story. Here's the second story. Well, suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Will he not first sit down and consider whether he's able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he's not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and ask for terms of peace. In the same way, any of you who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. You get, you get what's happening? Jesus takes again this immediate story and uses it in, in a parable and says, this is my paraphrase, and the people listening to this story would 
would not be in any doubt. Here's my paraphrase. What imbecile, that's my words, what imbecile would think of going to war with half as many people in armed combat? There's no rockets or missiles, just hand-to-hand combat. Which, who with 10,000 people would consider going to war with 20,000 people who've got a strong reputation as a military nation? Who would want to do that? Who would be foolish enough to do that? Who would be dumb enough to do that? And nobody listening to this story is in any doubt who Jesus is talking about. He's talking about the king. Right in his face, courage, kingdom clashing. There's no question about that. It's amazing what he says. And if that's not enough, he keeps going. Jesus doesn't just stop there. You see, in those days, it was important to keep your profile as a king before people. You needed people to, people couldn't read or write. They didn't have emails and and SMSs and, and propaganda literature. You had to keep your profile before the people. And one of the ways historically that has always been done and still is, is because you can't, you couldn't communicate words or paper or whatever, you put your your face on a coin. So every time people used that coin, you would, they would see your face and your profile would be... We still do that, by the way. And, and that was how they did it. But of course, in Israel, you couldn't do that because one of the commandments was you no graven images. So you couldn't put your face on a coin. So every leader in Israel who wanted their profile kept before people had a, a symbol had a symbol or a totem or a, or a kind of logo that represented them so that people would know when they saw that, that represented the king. And in this region of Israel, which is around the Sea of Galilee, the, the logo, or if you like, the symbol for Herod Antipas was a Galilean reed. It was everywhere. People knew whenever they saw the reed, it was on the coins. And whenever you saw a reed, you thought of the king. That's how it worked. So Jesus in Galilee, and we read this. After John's messages left, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John because he's really angry that the, the kingdom of God has been subjected and, and been put to the, to the, you know, John's been imprisoned. After this, Jesus traveled about from town to village to another. Sorry, after John's messages left, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out into the desert to see? A reed swayed by the wind? What that means is a king who's all over the place, a king who's got no courage, a king who's just up and down, a king who's just a roller coaster of a leader, a reed swayed by the wind. You know who the reed is? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear expensive clothes and indulge in luxury are in palaces. Who's he talking about? The king. Just someone who looks good? Just someone who's got all the vestiges of looking good? But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, and I tell you, more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it's written, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare you, prepare the way before you tell you among those born of women there is no one greater than John yet the one who's least in the kingdom of God is greater than he see this again is 
Jesus right in the face, in the face of the local king, saying, you and to the people, who would you rather, who would you rather follow? You want to follow someone who just sways like the wind? You want to follow someone who just looks good? Or do you want to look, follow someone who doesn't look the greatest and is now in prison, maybe now even executed, but who brought the message of the kingdom to you? And he does it in the face of Herod in Galilee. Really in your face. This is not gentle Jesus, meek and mild. This is Jesus, frank and fearless. This is a courage, this is the courage of Jesus. This is not just the niceness of Jesus or any of that. It's the courage, the bravery, the guts of Jesus. That's what's really important about that. And one of the questions I ask myself when I read passages like this is, what, where, what does it say to me about courage? Where do I require courage, kingdom courage, in my own life? What is it I need to do? Is there somebody I need to address? Is there somebody I need to forgive? Is there somebody, something I need to stand up for? What, what is that? What is the courage in my own life? And here's the thing, as a kind of the last little illustration I want to say of this is, Courage breeds courage. When you see somebody with courage, it actually breeds courage in you. It's called encourage. We encourage. We put courage in to someone. That's what happens in this story. Oh, again, let me read to you a couple of verses that you may have read through many, many times and just passed them over because it's like a, a beginning of a new chapter of Luke's gospel. As I said, Luke is the, quite forensic. He's quite detailed. In Luke chapter 8, we see this. After this, Jesus travelled about from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him. Also some women who'd been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out. Joanna, the wife of Cusa, the manager of Herod's household. Susanna and many others. These women were help, helping to support them out of their own means. What an extraordinary statement. Two extraordinary statements just in that very introduction that you and I might have read for you a few times before we got to the main story of Luke 8. Two things are astounding. Jesus and his disciples were financially supported by women. That was unheard of in that culture. There were women who financially and physically supported Jesus and his disciples. That was a no-no. But the second one, I don't know if you noticed it, but was one of those ladies called Joanna. Joanna, who's the wife of the manager of the household of the king. A woman who, what courage it takes for her even to be a follower of Jesus. But it says she supported him out of her means. That here is this woman who decides to follow Jesus, whose husband is the, the leader of the, the household, general manager, if you like, of, of the palace and who uses some of the salary that a husband gets to support Jesus. Courage breeds courage. It's an incredible story and it goes on. What areas of courage do we lack? What areas of courage do we find ourselves needing and requiring? I want to ask that 
in a moment, but I want to just show you one slide. This is a, I, could tell, I could tell you the story of these two people. I'll just tell you the story of one. I worked for many years with Compassion and had the joy of visiting some countries. This is, this is visiting Rwanda. And that young man on my right, on your left as you watch the film, his name is Remy Paul. Remy Paul is an albino Rwandan. In other words, he's from a black culture, but he was born white. And when he was born, his father left his mother because she, he thought she'd been unfaithful. So he left and she was left raising young Remy from a baby right through by himself. And he struggled in that culture. He struggled with the stigma of being white in an African culture. Not just was it a stigma of weirdness, but it was often in that culture it's seen as a demonic thing if that happens. So he grew up with this stigma. And Remy was um, in, that, in that place. He went through primary school, went into high school. He was tied up with a local church um, through his sponsorship and just somebody another culture cared for him somebody in that church cared for him but he still struggled with the stigma right throughout school so much so that at one point of time he in his early teenage years he turned to drugs another point of time he considered uh, ending his life but someone in that local church church like this I guess someone in that local church just got alongside him and encouraged him and supported him and put courage into him. He put his head down and his tail up and worked hard for the last couple of years of high school. Did so well he was supported through college, through university. Remy now is a clinical psychologist in Rwanda and he runs a program with government for 500 albino Rwandans like him who to help them through the assimilation process. See, courage breeds courage. Remy came to faith in his mid-teenage years and in that place through the local church just discovered the courage of God and pushed on to help and support others. Courage breeds courage. I want to just come to a close this morning and say, what are the areas of courage, areas of courage that are lacking in you, maybe today, that are lacking in me? Because I know they are. What do I need to be fearless about today? Where is there somewhere that I need to see the, the courage of Jesus living out in me today? Where do I need to stand up when I've maybe been a bit timid? Where is it I need to... Where is there thing, something I need to give up that's just holding me back? Something's got a hold of me. We sang in a song earlier about our addictions. What, what is it that we're kind of addicted to that we just can't let go of? What do I need to be fearless about? Do I need to forgive someone? Is there someone who has offended me and it's just it's eating away like a cancer? Is there someone I need to have the courage to forgive today? Is there someone I need to confront today or some issue I need to confront today that's just loomed up big in my life and in my faith? Do I need to be courageous in committing to Jesus today? Maybe I've never done that before and it's kind of... He's kind of there, but I've got a foot there and a foot there, and I'm not quite sure where to move. Maybe today is a time to make that commitment. Where is about today we need to say, Lord, Lord, just make me fearless for your kingdom. Is any of those areas, Lord, make me fearless for your kingdom. Where is it today?
Could courage be your signature move? The courage that Jesus had, could it become part of your life? I want to pray in a moment, but I just want to simply say this, that if, if as you sit here this morning, you can think, I just need courage in some area. You can think as we talk or as we think. You can, th- you can think to yourself, I just need courage in some area. Maybe I do need to forgive someone. Maybe I do need to stand up. Maybe I do need to confront. Maybe I do need to stand. If there's an area this morning where you need courage, I want to pray courage for you. I'm just going to ask very simply, if you just, if that's for you, just stand where you are in a moment. Just stand where you are and I'm not going to ask you to do anything weird or wonderful or whatever. Maybe wonderful, hopefully not weird. Just stand where you are and I'm going to pray for courage for you because you've had the courage to stand and say, I need something of what I see in the courage of Jesus to be in my own life. So now's the time. Just 30 seconds. Feel free to stand. If, uh, if there's somewhere you need courage for, just stand where you are now and I'm just going to pray for you. I don't need to know what that is. God knows. Just another few seconds and love to pray. Let me pray. Father, I want to thank you so much for the courage of people who stood this morning. And I don't know if there's a decision to make or a choice to fulfill or a a fork in the road or whether there's people to confront or issues to stand on. But I want to thank you for each person, Lord God, and you know the need in each person. I don't know that. I don't need to know that. You know it. And they know it. And Father, I would pray today for, for courage, for bravery, for that sense of God and God's in this with me, the sense that I'm not in this alone, but I can trust and move on with hope and with purpose. And Father, I pray for everyone standing here today that they will know the infusion of your spirit in new and fresh ways that will give them the courage from within. And Father, there may be some people here this morning who've stood for the first time and saying, I I need to to step up and see Jesus as my Saviour and Lord. And Lord, if that's true today, may that courage just continue as well. Father, I want to thank you for each one. I praise you for each one. I thank you that you see inside each one. You know that area. If it's forgiveness, if it's just taking a stand, if it's giving up something, it's holding us back. God, you will do it in your strength through ordinary everyday people who bring your kingdom. So Father, I thank you for each one today. Bless them, encourage them in Jesus' name.